This is the Green Street News, your weekly environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts, welcome back. On the subject board today, surprise, surprise, 2022 ocean temperatures were the highest ever recorded. Gas stoves are polluting our indoor air and giving kids asthma. And investors are telling chemical companies to stop making PFAS. And then we'll be talking about food safety and how the FDA is really not able to do the job we all assume it's doing. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Patty Wood, what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Well, we got some information, some data has come out this week about, you know, records set in 2022. And uh, there's one study from France.com, and the title is, New Study Says Ocean Temperatures in 2022 Were Highest Ever Recorded. The world's oceans, which have absorbed most of the excess heat caused by humanity's carbon pollution, continued to see record-breaking temperatures last year, according to research published last week. Climate change has increased surface temperatures across the planet, leading to atmospheric instability and amplifying extreme weather events such as storms. Oceans absorb about 90% of the excess heat from greenhouse gas emissions, shielding land surfaces but generating huge, long-lasting marine heat waves that are already having devastating effects on underwater life. Quote, the oceans are absorbing most of the heat from human carbon emissions, end quote, said co-author Michael Mann, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Until we reach net zero emissions, that heating will continue and will continue to break ocean heat content records as we did this year. Better awareness and understanding of the oceans are a basis for the actions to combat climate change, end quote. Well, how many times do scientists have to say the same thing? I was just going to say, we get these dire warnings week after week after week. These are really smart people telling us we have to change. And then we have this, you know, the UN climate conference and nothing changes. They refuse to change. This happens on almost every environmental issue. But when we're talking about the the future of our planet and everything that lives on it, uh, the definition you know. of a of an existential issue. I don't always think of the of the oceans as being heat sinks, but I, I can see that now that they Apparently, are. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I mean, the oceans are really getting the worst of mankind. Yeah, raising temperatures and tons and tons and tons of plastic waste. I was just going to say that the oceans are getting hit, you know, both ways, That's temperature right. and right. plastic. Right. right. Way to go, humans. Yeah. All right. What's next? Uh, One in eight cases of asthma in the U.S. is caused by gas stove pollution. Oh, boy. Oh, this is a big one. It's already been on the news all over the place that, oh, you know, the Biden administration is going to make us, you know, get rid of all of our gas stoves and so on. Well, it's an interesting, an interesting dilemma. This was written by Oliver Millman, and it was printed in The Guardian. New research has found that about one in eight cases of asthma in children in the U.S. is due to the pollution given off by cooking on gas stoves. The Biden administration is considering the regulation or even banning of gas stoves in America. Around a third of U.S. households currently have gas stoves in their kitchens, with the gas industry long touting the method as the cleanest and most efficient way to cook food. 
However, research has repeatedly found the emission of toxic chemicals and carcinogens from gas stoves, even when they are turned off, is creating indoor pollution that can be several times worse than the pollution experienced outdoors from car traffic and heavy industry. A new study has now sketched out the risk being posed to children exposed to pollutants such as nitrogen dioxide that spew from stoves, finding that more than 12% of all current cases of childhood asthma in the U.S. are due to the use of gas stoves. Researchers said that this means that with around 5 million children in the U.S. experiencing asthma, around 650,000 people aged under 18 could be suffering asthma attacks and having to use inhalers because of the presence of gas stoves in their homes. This is just an amazing story. I never heard about this before. Well, I mean, you know Have that you? the gas is, it, gas is, is methane, Maybe, and that's toxic. Excuse me. We're pretty careful about what's in our house. We're really well, careful about toxins, right. and we got a gas stove downstairs that we I use every day. I love cooking with gas. I love it, and ours is a really old stove with all kinds of problems that we've had, you know, patched together over the years because I love the stove so much. Well, are we okay. going to? Do we going to get rid of it? Yes, I was yeah. going to say I really think so, but I'm going to just say yes. We're going to. Yeah, it sounds like we don't have any any choice. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's crazy. You know, even if you move, you don't want to sell the house that has a gas stove in it because. Wow, okay. this is a. I know. Big, Let me keep going on change. though, because it gets it gets even better. Worse. Brady Seals, one of the authors of the study, said the prevalence of asthma due to gas stoves is similar to the amount of asthma caused by secondhand smoking, which she called eye popping. We knew this was a problem, but we didn't know how bad, she said. This study shows that if we got rid of gas stoves, we would prevent 12.7% of all childhood asthma cases, which I think most people would want to do, don't you? I mean, if you know that your stove is causing asthma in your child, you're going to get rid of that stove. 12.7%? That's a lot yeah, of kids. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is. Wow. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission has come under pressure from Democrats to act on gas stoves, with a recent letter from a group of lawmakers, including the U.S. Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, calling on the agency to set tough new performance standards for gas appliances and to launch a public education campaign on the dangers of cooking with gas. Seals said it would have been, quote, unimaginable, end quote, for the federal government to ponder banning gas stoves just a few years ago, but said her optimism of such a ban was tempered by the commission's lack of resources, slow decision making and the lobbying power of the gas industry. A lack of options for low income people and those who rent to get rid of their gas stoves is another obstacle, although the Inflation Reduction Act passed by Democrats last summer included a rebate of up to $840 for people who buy a new electric induction cooking appliance. I feel like I've been living under a rock because I just haven't heard about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How amazing All right. Well, this rebate is primarily aimed at propelling the electrification of appliances in the U.S. to move away from fossil fuels that worsen the climate crisis. Places such as New York City have banned gas hookups in new buildings to help accelerate this transition, although other jurisdictions at state levels such as Ohio, Oklahoma, and Louisiana have forbidden local authorities from doing likewise. <laughs> Last year, and this is the end, Researchers at Stanford discovered that levels of nitrogen dioxide emitted from gas stoves and ovens can rise above safe standards set for outdoor pollution by the Environmental Protection Agency within just a few minutes, with the problem particularly acute in smaller kitchens. I'm speechless over this. I really am. Mm -hmm. 
So I guess we're going shopping next week for a new stove. Yeah, yeah. we need to. I mean, we need to look into that. We need to yeah. look into the the rebate, it's the eight hundred and forty dollar rebate. Who buy a new electric induction cooking appliance? Good grief! All right. You know how many people we know have gas stoves? Everybody I know. Everybody. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Okay, well, that's very ah, interesting news, yeah. <clears throat> especially okay. for people in New York. I mean, there are a lot of people listening to this program who are cooking on a gas stove every night. Yeah, but I'm also lo- I'm also looking at the restaurants. I mean, the restaurants have to cook with gas because they have to have instant heat, and it's just a it's a much better fuel, I think. Mm-mm-mm. Well. Okay, right. what else you got? All right, the last one is also um, published in The Guardian, written by Tom Perkins. The title is Investors Pressure Top Firms to Halt Production of Toxic Forever Chemicals, which are PFAS. We've mm-hmm. talked about it so yep. many times. Yep. Investors from some of the world's largest firms are pressuring chemical companies to end production of toxic PFAS forever chemicals, which shareholders say represent an enormous and growing threat to manufacturers' bottom lines. It's all about the money. I was just going to say, not the threat to human health. Nope, nope. It's all about the money. Never has been. All right, PFAS are a class of about 12,000 compounds typically used to make products resist water, stain, and heat. They are called forever chemicals because they do not naturally break down. They're linked to cancer, kidney disease, liver problems, immune disorders, birth defects, and other serious health problems. A letter signed by a group of European investment firms holding $8 trillion in assets cites a tsunami of litigation brought against PFAS manufacturers, ever-increasing regulation that imposes strict limits on the chemical's use and the compound's public health threat. Quote, liability for PFAS contamination of the entire planet is expanding, end quote, said Eric Olson, a senior strategic director at the National Resources Defense Council, or NRDC. The letter was made public ahead of a decision by 3M, one of the world's largest PFAS manufacturers, to discontinue making the chemicals by the end of 2025. Why are they waiting so long? We know how dangerous, so why do we have to wait until 2025? All right, quote, this is another quote from Eric Olson. There has got to be concern in boardrooms and among shareholders that continuing to manufacture these chemicals that are creating the Superfund sites of tomorrow is really risky for them financially. If people getting sick and dying of exposure to these chemicals wasn't enough, the liability should be. Yeah, so, you know, it's going to cost them some money to shut down and find alternatives, but the legal tsunami is going to be unbelievable. But I'm going to make you a bet. I bet in Congress in the next few months we see something tacked onto a bill that gives immunity to these companies from liability. I'm telling you they're going to do it. But it does happen frequently. Yeah. I mean, they got a lot of friends. Frequently. They got a lot of friends in uh, in in Congress. They, you know, these are gigantic chemical companies. They're making a lot of money, and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to lose. Yeah, but what bothered me, what you just said, is that they're going to have to find alternatives. That's one of the problems. Is that sometimes the alternatives are as dangerous as the as the chemical yeah. that they're trying to. Yeah, to but get it's rid whack-a-mole, of. Patty. It takes oh. them a while to do the scientific studies and to yeah, prove but got that it's just this. Yeah, you've got twelve thousand PFAS chemicals. 
12,000, you're going to ban all 12,000 of those why, chemicals? That's why Arlene Blum says ban the whole class. Don't ban the individual chemicals. Ban the whole class of chemicals, and you don't Correct. have that problem. All right, well, let me go on here. Industry observers say the math on 3M's PFAS profits and liabilities sheds light on why the chemical giant decided to phase out production and why investors in other PFAS manufacturers are concerned over liabilities. 3M's 2021 annual report shows about $1.3 billion in PFAS sales and details dozens of lawsuits it faces from states, local municipalities, water utilities, school districts, other companies, and residents. Quote, when we look forward at some of those factors, we don't see a viable business in the future. 3M's chief executive, Mike Roman, told Bloomberg, this is a portfolio decision that allows us to move into other higher growth opportunities, end quote. It's all about the money, Patty. This is a portfolio decision, <laughs> not a decision about public health, not a decision about poisoning people. No. It's a portfolio decision that allows us to move into other higher growth opportunities. Oh, Lord. Wow. This is, wow. this is America, capitalism at work. All right, thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Most Americans tend to take the safety of our food for granted. We hear about food recalls from time to time, but generally we consider the food on our plates to be safe. Most of us have a vague notion that the Food and Drug Administration and the Agriculture Department have folks whose job it is to keep the food supply safe. And while that's technically true, it's not the whole truth, as they say in court. A recent op-ed in the Washington Post singled out the FDA for its failure to manage the infant baby formula disaster and noted that this failure was symptomatic of a larger problem. FDA is just not up to the job of protecting and managing our food supply. And according to many experts, because food is such an important industry, vital to our economy, and so critical to our national public health, it needs to have its own agency to properly manage things. The food safety system is broken, and chances are good that the infant baby formula crisis was not the last or the worst that will affect us if nothing changes. So where is the adult in the room? Who is watching what's going on? I did not grow up on a farm. I did not grow up in the food world or anything like that. But my grandpa had a produce market in southwestern Pennsylvania. So when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time with him working at this market when I was really young. I think I had maybe more of like an awareness of food early on in life. That's Helena Botmiller-Evich, an award-winning reporter who previously led the food coverage at Politico and who now writes and publishes her own food industry newsletter called Food Fix. Helena keeps a close and scrutinizing eye on the FDA and its work on food. I've been really hard on FDA, but I think it's important to distinguish the structure and the institution and the kind of the bureaucracy and the political system that they work in and distinguish that from the people. Because there are a lot of incredibly dedicated public servants at FDA and at lots of federal agencies who are there for the right reasons, right? They are not there to get rich, they are there just because they believe in public health or they believe in you know the science or whatever issue, the area they're working on. And and some people are doing incredible work. So I don't want this to ever be like a you know a personal attack on you know hardworking employees. I think at FDA in particular, there are real cultural problems 
uh, a real fear of you know going out on any limbs and i think sometimes that fear of litigation or fear of industry backlash or whatever it is on the particular issue can really be paralyzing and i don't think that that's any individual's fault it's a lack of having a structure that really supports decision making in a reasonable time frame and when you don't have that like i think the the term that was used by the independent review that was done on fda recently i think it used the term constant turmoil that's what it feels like when you kind of don't have those things one of the reasons for the dysfunction at fda is corporate influence the food industry is a trillion dollar, that's trillion with a T, trillion dollar industry with gigantic, powerful international conglomerates whose primary job is not to protect public health or to ensure we have safe food to eat. Their job is to make money, and they take that job very seriously. Corporate influence in Washington is nothing new, but it seems to have been a major factor in paralyzing efforts at the FDA to improve the nation's nutritional standards. I think that's one of the common themes across Washington, right, is that how much industry shows up here on every issue, whether it's drug policy, food policy, education policy, like that is a constant theme. You have lobbyists, trade associations, individual companies show up here and they make their case. They spend lots of money. And so certainly it comes into play in food policy often. So, you know, I track like who's hiring who, which firms are they hiring to do work. Sometimes we'll look at how much they're spending. So that's certainly an element of it, but it is such a constant theme here in um, DC that it's like, it's almost not newsworthy, but it is pervasive. And I think that is a theme, you know, that comes up a lot across so many issues, school meals, which companies are involved in that and, and why. And, you know, there's a whole separate food industry set up just around school meals. And a lot of people are surprised to learn that, but you know, that's a now somewhere between 30 and 40 billion dollar market. And so there are these, all these like areas you can go into and you can find these like kind of cottage industries ar around them. And it's really interesting to track all that. And then, you know, I think a lot of parents are not keyed into that. There's so many issues that they are behind on that need tracking as well, like heavy metals in, in baby foods. You know, the agency is really struggling to set limits. Consumer groups have been flagging for a long time. The agency's really been reticent to set limits and enforce them. They're behind even on the initial limits they said that they would set for particularly lead in baby food. Bloomberg Law last week did a really good piece that did their own testing and they found, yep, we're finding arsenic, cadmium, lead in levels that are concerning across different products. Part of the FDA's job is to help consumers understand what's actually in the package of food they're throwing into their shopping cart and whether or not it's good for them and their families. Labeling of food is one of the main boxing rings at the FDA, where scientists and food experts who know what's right always seem to be at a disadvantage against opponents who are well-funded, well-connected, and relentless in their fight to protect profits. FDA is, I think, trying to figure out like how to be more focused on nutrition, right? Especially coming out of the White House conference, they're talking about maybe doing a front of pack label system where you would, you know, who knows, would it be stoplights? Would it be stars? Would it be some something on the front of pack to help consumers pick healthier foods? But that's a long way off. And I think 
there's a lot of concern about how that would work and like how it could kind of easily be co-opted or like you could easily see a world in which like the symbol or whatever would get on less healthy food and then people would mock it and it would sort of like not have any teeth. And I think there's a, a long road ahead for FDA to sort of figure out what its role is on nutrition. Because aside from mandating nutrition labeling, like we have the Nutrition Facts panel, FDA hasn't been as active on nutrition, right? They're kind of in like an educate label mode. One of the few real successes FDA has had in the relatively recent past has been the development of MyPlate, an update of the famous food triangle that many of us grew up with. MyPlate, which was first released in 2011, provides advice on what to eat and drink to meet nutritional needs, promote health, and prevent disease. It was developed and written for a professional audience, including policymakers, healthcare providers, nutrition educators, and federal nutrition program operators. The MyPlate was an upgrade on the food pyramid. So that was during the Obama administration. And basically it's just a plate with four quadrants, if you can imagine this. So you have four quadrants. They're about equally sized, but they're not perfectly equally sized. One is grains, one is protein, one is vegetables, and one is fruits. So half your plate should be fruits and vegetables. The other half is like protein, grain, and then they have milk floating out, of course, got the milk, which not everyone agrees with, but there's milk out there. So overall, people did see that as an improvement in terms of it's simpler, right? It is just so much simpler to communicate that than it is a food pyramid, which got mocked for a lot of, a lot of different reasons. But over time, I think nutrition advice from the government has been sort of convoluted. My plate is very simple, but very little promotion went into that. A lot of people don't know about it. There was just a study done recently that said like the vast majority of Americans have never heard of it, even though we've had it for 10 years. So clearly the agency has a communication problem. Again, the food industry, which makes tremendous profits from selling us stuff we shouldn't eat and which appears nowhere on the MyPlate chart, isn't anxious for the agency to make too much noise about it. So there it sits. It even has its own website, myplate.gov. But while the food industry spends billions advertising things that don't appear on the plate, it also seems to have made sure there's not a big budget to promote myplate.gov. We have nutrition advice. We have simplified it as a country, but most people are not aware of myplate and the vast majority of people are not following the dietary guidelines. And so that's just sort of what the data show. Genetically modified or GMO foods, sometimes called genetically engineered foods or bioengineered foods, are foods or ingredients that aren't found in nature, but have been produced from organisms that have had their DNA changed to make them more profitable for growers, like tomatoes or apples that don't spoil as fast, or corn that's resistant to heavy spraying of pesticides. Fooling around with nature has had some horrific effects in the past. While there's little science to suggest the same may be true with GMO foods, many consumers have decided not to take any chances with the food industry's notion of better and want to avoid foods grown or made with GMO ingredients. But labeling GMO foods turned out to be a big fight. There was a really long fight over how to disclose GMOs in food, right? Like, so states were going after this. They were, in some cases, like Vermont, mandating GMO labeling. And it really caused chaos in the food industry because they were like, oh my gosh, we're going to have to label special stuff for Vermont. But like, you know, just the way that food is distributed, it's, it's really national. So like, 
if you're making Oreos, like you are not just making Oreos for Vermont, right? You're making Oreos for everyone. And so the labeling issues that were presented were really complicated for the food industry and it really forced them to go to Congress and say, okay, we need a uniform disclosure. But notice I'm using the term disclosure, not necessarily label, right? So they pushed for basically mandatory disclosure, but that could include like a QR code or, you know, you could call a number and find out sort of this extra layer. What I'm finding though is a lot of packages actually are disclosing on the back in real small font. They'll say like, you know, contains bioengineered ingredients. Some of them will even say like contains bioengineered ingredients, including soy and canola or whatever. It'll, it'll say it, but it's real small. It's on the back. And from what I've heard, this hasn't really impacted consumer purchase much, if at all. And I think a lot of that is because if consumers were concerned about GMOs and if they wanted to avoid them, they were already doing that through buying organic. For young parents, food and nutrition have always been of particular interest. Well baby visits always focus on how the baby's eating and whether or not he or she has gained any weight. That's why the infant baby formula crisis was such a nightmare for young parents. But as kids begin to grow up, parental control over what they eat begins to ebb. Pediatricians are really focused on nutrition initially. And I don't know that you get as many questions about that later. They're just like, they want your kids to grow and thrive. And that's like a very big concern in the beginning. How I think about it as a parent is you get less and less control over your kid's food environment as they get older. You start having birthday parties where they're ordering, you know, dominoes and they're eating birthday cake and they're and that's like a fun thing, but it kind of all ends up seeping in to creating an environment that's just maybe out of your control. Food at school is often out of a parent's control, what kind of snacks they're serving. And there's been a lot of focus on improving nutrition standards for what can be sold in schools, what can be served in schools. But I still think a lot of parents that are concerned about nutrition end up feeling a little bit out of control in terms of like the environment that their that their kid is in. There's a great book about this called Kid Food by Bettina Siegel. It talks about kids' menus, why we have those. And I think um, anyone with young kids who's thinking about these issues would probably find that book interesting. It can kind of feel like you're swimming upstream. And I think there's, I think it's fair to say there's a lot of work to do to make like the overall food environment healthier, not just for kids, but for everyone, right? Like we're all living in a food environment that sort of encourages us to, to treat ourselves all the time. So how can we help our kids learn about good food? If the government is stymied in its efforts to promote what's good for us to eat, an industry has unlimited funds to buy advertising that specifically targets kids with ads for things they shouldn't eat, what tools do we have? Many schools are now discovering that a garden is an amazing way for kids to learn, not only about food, but about patience, the virtue of growing things, of taking care, and of course, science. I probably, when I first started covering this, would have been someone who'd go, I mean, yeah, gardens are nice, but like, do they really have a big impact? They have a big impact in terms of what kids will try. There's studies showing that kids eat more fruits and vegetables at schools that do cooking demos and have gardens. There's a big cultural element there that I think totally we should not, we should not dismiss. Even though it sounds like kind of a soft thing, it, it, it is a, a real tool.
Helena Botmiller-Evich, a former award-winning food industry reporter at ProPublica, who now writes, edits, and publishes her own bi-weekly food industry newsletter called Food Fix, which you can find on the web and subscribe at foodfix.co. We'll put up the MyPlate chart on the show page, along with a link to Food Fix and the articles that Patty talked about at the top of the show. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Special thanks to Alina Ivich for being our guest on Green Street News and to our friends at WBAI in New York for making the show possible. Don't forget to tell your friends to check out Green Street News on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can always find links and past shows and contact information at our own website, greenstreetnews.org. Patty and I will be back next week with another show. Thanks for listening. Thank you.